Welcome to the Freewheeling Diplomat Podcast. My name is Colin Cleary, and I am the Freewheeling Diplomat. In 2020, I completed a career spanning over three decades in the U.S. Foreign Service. This included diplomatic assignments in Kiev, Moscow, Madrid, Warsaw, Kampala, and Mexico City. But now I'm outside government and free to offer my own perspectives on key foreign policy issues. I am not bound by any party line or the need to stick to talking points. Putin's war in Ukraine has been the impetus for me to start this podcast. Attention, after nearly four months of fighting, is beginning to wane. There is the danger of Ukraine fatigue. But the war churns on. So I thought I would jump in now as a kind of reinforcement and devote the Freewheeling Diplomat podcast to the war and then expand to other topics later. My goal is to offer context and background including observations about recent Ukrainian-Russian relations. I'd like to get beyond the day-to-day coverage and try to explain how we got here. I realize there are many sources of information and analysis out there, but I hope the perspective of a U.S. diplomatic practitioner who served extensively in the region will add some value. This podcast comes to you from Washington, D.C., where I am an adjunct professor of U.S. foreign policy at George Washington University. But the Freewheeling Diplomat podcast is entirely independent. As a podcast develops, I'll look into looping in some guests. I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I will focus on facts. As former Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan once observed, everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not to his own facts. That's what I'll try to do. So let's get to it. Our first topic delves into some recent history that helped create the current moment. It concerns the rise and fall of the pro-Russian Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych. The key point is this, Putin's ineptitude. Specifically, how Putin prompted the overthrow of a pro-Russian, NATO-neutral Ukrainian government in 2014. Putin's inability to understand Ukraine is, of course, painfully evident today. It is obvious that he completely misunderstood what the reaction in Ukraine would be to his invasion of February 24th. It is obvious that he overestimated the prowess of his supposedly modernized military. And it is obvious that he failed to appreciate the unity of the West's response. But Putin's ineptitude regarding Ukraine is not new. Indeed, Putin has a long history of getting Ukraine wrong, egregiously wrong. In fact, it was none other than Vladimir Putin who spurred the ouster of the corrupt, Russia-friendly president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, in February 2014. Putin incessantly calls Yanukovych's ouster an unconstitutional coup, which he claims renders the current elected Ukrainian government illegitimate. He even blames the CIA or the State Department or some other force for somehow orchestrating Yanukovych's ouster. But in fact, Putin was the real initiator of the Maidan Revolution of 2014. He had then in Ukraine what he has claimed he wanted, a NATO-neutral pro-Russian Ukrainian government, but he brought it down. Though, blinded by his ineptitude, he appears not to recognize it. And he, of course, blames it on other forces. So let's take a look and see how Putin, this master of geopolitics, did it. Let's go back to January 2010, when Viktor Yanukovych was elected president of Ukraine. This was the same Viktor Yanukovych whose blatant election fraud in 2004, when he first ran for president, prompted the Orange Revolution. After mass public protests against the fraud, there was a rerun of the presidential election under international supervision, a rerun which Yanukovych decisively lost. 
Putin had personally campaigned for Yanukovych in Ukraine in 2004, injecting himself directly into Ukrainian politics on what turned out to be the losing, corrupt, and vote-stealing side, typical of Putin's ineptitude on Ukraine. Yanukovych's opponent, Viktor Yushchenko, was famously poisoned by dioxin as the initial campaign culminated. The poisoning made Yushchenko grievously ill, took him off the campaign trail on the home stretch, and seriously disfigured his face. Was Putin involved in the poisoning? Were his agents involved? We'll probably never know for sure. But his political enemies do have a way, as we all know, of getting poisoned. So it certainly is suspicious. In any event, the poisoning backfired by increasing sympathy for Yushchenko. It was cruel and inept, like the 2022 invasion of Ukraine. Okay, back to the Orange Revolution. The Orange Revolution was, to many in the West, as well as to most Ukrainians, a hopeful triumph of democracy in the post-Soviet world. True, the election results did show that Ukraine remained politically divided, at that time, on an east-west axis. But at least in the end, democracy had prevailed. The candidate with the most votes was the winner. Putin was, of course, horrified. And he has been wailing about the dangers of colored revolutions ever since. Conspiratorial KGB officer that he is, Putin has repeatedly asserted and is apparently convinced that the State Department and or CIA must have orchestrated the Orange Revolution. He can't bring himself to believe that the Ukrainian people themselves had the audacity to reject Yanukovych's rigged election and demand democracy. There is nothing like mass expressions of popular democratic will to scare Putin. And he's been plotting revenge over this colored revolution ever since. But in 2004, he was still consolidating his rule and had not yet broken with the West. So he had to bide his time as his resentment grew. Unfortunately for Ukraine, after the Orange victory, the Orange Revolution's most prominent leaders, Yushchenko and his first prime minister, Yulia Tymoshenko, descended into incessant infighting. It's a long, painful story, and I'll spare you the gory details. But it was greatly destructive of Orange governments. Pre-term parliamentary elections were called and called again. Yushchenko, who had been a capable prime minister and central bank governor, turned out to be a largely ineffective and increasingly isolated president. Some speculated that the dioxin poisoning he had suffered had affected his faculties. The public, even many orange sympathizers, became disillusioned. To be fair, there were some real successes during the orange period, and they are worth noting. Civil society was liberated and prospered enormously. Basic freedoms were respected, freedom of speech, assembly, and religion. There was media freedom, although ownership by Ukrainian oligarchs slanted TV coverage to suit the preferences of the owner. The elections held during the Orange period were contentious, but essentially free and fair. Indeed, the greater problem about elections was that they were held too frequently, and that as a result, too much attention was given to politicking and too little to effective governance and implementation of reform. This hurt Orange popularity. To his credit, Yushchenko raised international attention to the crime of the Holodomor, the genocidal terror famine which Stalin unleashed on Ukrainian peasant farmers who, were, who had resisted collectivization during 1932-33, resulting in the deaths by starvation of 3 to 5 million Ukrainians. Finally, Ukraine under Orange rule ultimately respected the essence of democracy, the peaceful transfer of power to opposing political forces after a legitimate electoral context. 
But on the negative side, Yushchenko did little to bridge the East-West political divide in Ukraine. In fact, he probably accentuated it. So Orange shortcomings, particularly Orange political infighting, created an opening for the anti-Orange opposition, led, again, by none other than the same Viktor Yanukovych. The corrupt election fraudster from Donetsk, with ties to criminal elements, was making a comeback. And this time, he had U.S. help. Not from the U.S. government, but from the infamous Paul Manafort, later Trump's campaign manager, who stepped in to work prominently as an advisor on Yanukovych's campaign. Manafort earned many millions of dollars coaching Yanukovych, making his message more appealing nationally, trying to convince the U.S. Embassy and other Western audiences that there was a new, democratic Yanukovych, and that Yanukovych and his party of regions were pro-business and willing to work with the West. Manafort sought to smooth Yanukovych's rough edges, getting him to speak Ukrainian instead of his native Russian. True, Yanukovych still looked and sounded like a gangster, but a better coiffed gangster in expensive and better-fitting suits. In fact, a look much like Manafort's own. And it worked. Yanukovych's party of regions gained seats in the ill-advised preterm elections called by Orange leader Yushchenko. Yanukovych even came back as prime minister. He had no shortage of money to finance his political makeover. His major financial backer was Renat Akhmetov, another Donetsk native who arose in questionable circumstances from Ukraine's wild east of the 1990s to become Ukraine's richest man, which he remains today. It is important to understand there is no concept of separation between the political and the personal for Yanukovych or his cohort. Politics to them is a business for profit. You win, and the money spent to get you elected is paid back many times over through insider contracts, privatizations, payoffs, shakedowns, etc. Yanukovych and his backers likely felt that the millions of dollars paid to Manafort were worth it. After all, Manafort had, arguably, been the factor that put them over the top and gotten them control of the government, where they could cash in. And they intended to stay in office as long as possible, by whatever means they needed to use, while giving lip service to democratic forms. Most Ukrainians understood that Yanukovych and his cohort were corrupt and no exemplars of democracy, but it was hoped that they might at least build things, get something done, stadiums, roads, airports. That was the message of the supposedly new Yanukovych. And at least the orange infighting would stop. But this does lead to an important point. Putin contends that the U.S. had controlled or sought to control Ukrainian politics and was behind the Orange Revolution and the 2014 ouster of Yanukovych. But in fact, there was no effort by the United States, then under the early Obama administration, to intervene in support of the Orange forces in the 2009-2010 presidential campaign. If the Orange Revolution had in fact been a U.S. plot to hijack Ukraine's politics, you would think the U.S. would have intervened in some fashion to protect it but it did not under Obama. The early approach of the George W. Bush administration was somewhat different, and we can get into that in a later episode. What the U.S. and the Europeans supported in the 2010 presidential election campaign was the process, which the Orange Revolution represented, the institution of a system of free, fair, and competitive elections. This was what U.S. government-funded organizations like the National Democratic Institute and the International Republican Institute operating in Ukraine were trying to inculcate. Not in an electoral system that was for show, yielding a predetermined electoral result, as in Putinist managed democracy. 
And so it was, in round one of the 2010 election, Yushchenko, the one-time orange hero, got only 5% of the vote, a record low for a sitting president probably anywhere in the world. No candidate had a majority, so there was a runoff between Timoshenko and Yanukovych. Yanukovych won the runoff by 3.5%. Manafort's maker of Yanukovych had paid off. International and national observers declared the result basically free and fair. Timoshenko cried foul and contested the results, but the U.S. and the Europeans, true to their word, acknowledged Yanukovych's victory. They did so on the basis of the conclusions of the election observers that the election was basically free and fair. Again, U.S. and Western support was for a free and fair process, not a predetermined electoral result. Ukrainians accepted the result as well. There was no new Maidan to back Timoshenko's claims of fraud. There was to be a peaceful transition of power to an opposing political force. President Obama gave Yanukovych a congratulatory phone call and pledged to work with him as the legitimate victor. Obama even sent his national security advisor, General James Jones, a former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, to head a delegation to Yanukovych's inauguration. To be sure, the U.S. knew who Yanukovych was— that he had a criminal past, was sympathetic to Russia, and was the instigator of the 2004 voter fraud. But he was the winner, and that had to be respected. Putin cannot seem to comprehend that this could have been the actual U.S. view, which he would see as hopelessly naive, and one so contrary to his conspiratorial way of thinking. But the record shows the U.S. was willing to work with Yanukovych, despite his sordid past, because he won. Indeed, in April 2010, Yanukovych was a featured guest of Obama at a nuclear security summit in Washington. This was because the Ukrainian government had agreed to get rid of supplies of highly enriched uranium left over from the Soviet era, a high priority for Obama's non-proliferation agenda. Getting rid of the HEU was a bone Yanukovych could throw to the U.S., one that cost him nothing but earned him some goodwill. Nonetheless, Yanukovych did move quickly after his election to please Putin and demonstrate his pro-Russian tilt. He formally declared Ukraine neutral, removing the quest for NATO membership as a national goal, and he had Ukraine's neutrality status ratified in the Rada. He then provided Russia with a 25-year extension of the lease of the Russian Black Sea Fleet naval base in Sevastopol, Crimea, which then, of course, was part of Ukraine and is now illegally annexed. Putin was no doubt very pleased. These moves prompted outrage among the opposition parties and chaotic scenes in the Rada back in Ukraine. Smoke bombs and egg throwing occurred during the voting sessions, and crowds protested outside. But the U.S. position was if these were the policies of the democratically elected Ukrainian government, then so be it. So much for the idea of a U.S. plot to force Ukraine into NATO. As we know, NATO membership is, of course, forced on no one. A country has to want it and meet conditions, and the alliance has to decide that it is in the interest of the members to accept the application. Quite the opposite to the Russian imperial, Soviet, and Putinist method of forcing others to ally with you. And so the West accepted the decision of the Yanukovych administration to end its quest for NATO membership. There was, of course, deep concern in the West over Yanukovych's backsliding on democracy, and that grew with each day of the Yanukovych administration. Manafort's spin of a new Yanukovych quickly wore thin and was proven false. Indeed, Yanukovych and his Donetsk mafia never gave up their familiar ways of using government as a cash cow for themselves. 
Yanukovych and his family were particularly greedy, demanding their percentages on major contracts and operations. Yanukovych and his cohort then started arresting political opponents, including Timoshenko. They just couldn't resist. Ironically, the charge against Timoshenko was that while prime minister, she'd violated Ukrainian state interests by giving Putin too favorable a deal on the price of Russian natural gas exports to Ukraine. In other words, the Russia-friendly Yanukovych had imprisoned his rival for being too pro-Russian. While all this was going on, despite the backsliding on democracy, the government of Ukraine under Yanukovych was still engaged in talks with the EU over an association agreement. And amazingly, the talks made progress. It is important to underline that the association agreement with the EU is not EU membership and does not necessarily lead to EU membership. Indeed, any possible EU membership for Ukraine was, at best, a distant prospect. An association agreement did offer Ukraine the opportunity to adopt EU norms in a range of fields, and this would spur reform and facilitate trade with the EU. Russia had not objected to this, at least not strongly, during the first years of Yanukovych's rule. But, as negotiations reached their finale after over three years, Putin, in his wisdom, weighed in, strongly and publicly. Suddenly, Yanukovych's rescinding of NATO's previous stated desire to join NATO was not enough submission to Moscow. Putin declared that the EU was now off-limits for Ukraine as well, even just an association agreement. He demanded instead that Ukraine link up with Russia in a Eurasian Economic Union. Putin further bribed Yanukovych with a $15 billion loan, and perhaps other pressure. Maybe Putin threatened to release Kompromat on Yanukovych's various crimes as a young man, which may have included rape. Who knows? In any case, Yanukovych obliged Putin by doing a complete about-face on the EU association agreement. It was this, this abrupt about-face demanded by Putin in violation of Ukraine's stated national policy to move towards EU standards that shocked the Ukrainian public and prompted the Euromaidan protests in Kyiv's Independence Square in November 2013. This was a bridge too far. At first, the protesters were mostly students and civil society activists who camped out on Maidan, Independence Square. After some weeks, Yanukovych unleashed his riot police, known as Berkut, to disperse them. It was this violent attack on the students that sparked a much larger societal protest and a much bigger occupation of Maidan. The themes of the protest also expanded. It was now not only about Yanukovych's abrupt reversal on the EU association agreement. The protest now included broader issues of corruption, the backtracking on democracy, and Yanukovych's fealty to Putin. At times in December 2013, the Maidan had a festival-like atmosphere, Famous bands offered concerts before tens of thousands. True, there were right sector and other nationalist groups among the protesters, but the Maidan protesters were, for the most part, regular Ukrainians who were seeing their fledgling democracy slipping away and were simply seeking a return to democratic norms. Eventually, the police cracked down again. Finally, in January and February 2014, Interior police snipers killed over a hundred protesters as they charged up the hill leading from Maidan to the presidential offices, right in the center of Kyiv. Images of this massacre are incredible. The nation was stunned. European leaders came to Kyiv to mediate. Even the security services were stunned. And in the wake of the killing of so many protesters and the resulting popular outrage, 
the security services themselves withdrew from the presidential administration offices. The Maidan movement demanded Yanukovych's immediate resignation. Without the protection of the security services, a fearful, indeed cowardly, Yanukovych abruptly fled Kiev in the night, first to Kharkiv, then to Russia, where he remains, sulking in some mansion, paid for with stolen money, hoping perhaps that Putin will reinstall him. With Yanukovych having fled, the parliament promptly removed him from office as president. Even his own party did not oppose this. His ouster was thus not an unconstitutional coup, but a response by the elected parliament to the flight of a fugitive president from justice. Let me reiterate the essential point. Putin's heavy-handed pressure on Yanukovych and Yanukovych's decision to give in to it and abandon the EU Association Agreement led directly to the Maidan protests and the end of the Yanukovych government. Putin, by his own actions, had lost a Russia-friendly, neutral, corrupt, and compromised Ukrainian government. The Maidan protests were the product of the outrage of Ukrainian society. They were not the product of any foreign instigation. There was no U.S. control. Again, the record shows the U.S. had not objected to Yanukovych's election and had tried to work with him. And the U.S. had accepted Yanukovych's declaration of neutrality in 2010 as the choice of a duly elected government. Ironically, if Putin had not derailed the Yanukovych's government's signing of an association agreement with the EU, it is possible Yanukovych might have been re-elected in 2015, or that he would have retained power past 2015 through fraud and oppression, or conversely, that an attempt that Yanukovych might have made to cling to power after a 2015 election loss would have provoked a revolution at that point. We will never know, because Putin forced the issue and precipitated Yanukovych's fall in 2014. So once again, Putin brought down Yanukovych, not the CIA, not the State Department, not the EU, not George Soros, not the boogeyman. During his four years in office, Yanukovych, in traitorous fashion, had neglected the army, the military, which had become largely a shell and was deeply penetrated by Russian operatives. The Ukrainian military and security services were thus in no position to meet Putin's challenges after Yanukovych's ouster. Putin's deploying of little green men to Crimea and then illegally annexing it and his fomenting of armed separatism in the eastern Donbass region. Putin sought then to even provoke all of eastern and southern Ukraine, Novorossiya, into rebellion. But risings in Kharkiv and Odessa, spurred by his agents, failed. Crimea was always a special case. It had a unique autonomous status in Ukraine. The Russian Black Sea Fleet was based there, as were thousands of Russian sailors and troops. The Crimean population in general was more pro-Russian than in any other region of Ukraine, with the great exception of the Crimean Tatars. But that is another story. So that pro-Russian bent in Crimea and the poor state of the Ukrainian military is why it fell to Putin without a fight. But by illegally annexing Crimea and fomenting violent separatism in Donbass, Putin achieved three things that worked against his ultimate desire to control all of Ukraine. One, he removed from the Ukrainian body politic several million voters who had, at least historically, demonstrated greater pro-Russian sympathies than most Ukrainians and had voted for pro-Russian parties. This turned the national electoral balance decisively in favor of pro-European parties. Two, the backlash in Ukraine against the annexation of Crimea and the war in Donbass intensified pro-European sentiment nationwide. And three, 
It also provoked a lessening of the east-west divide in the territory remaining under Ukrainian control and greater support for the Ukrainian state. We have seen the results since February 24th. Predominantly Russian-speaking regions like Kharkiv and Odessa and Mykolaiv and many others, far from welcoming Putin's invading army as liberators, have shown that they are deeply committed to Ukraine. They clearly want no part of unification with Putin's Russia. Putin claims to be acting to protect the rights of Russian speakers in Donbass and elsewhere in Ukraine against supposed genocide. These claims are lies. In fact, Putin is the great killer of Ukraine's Russian language speakers. They have borne the brunt of his outrageous aggression. He has terrorized millions of them, forced millions to abandon their homes. Putin's deliberate targeting of civilian areas with rockets and artillery has killed thousands of Russian-speaking Ukrainians. Their cities, towns, and villages have been systematically destroyed. Liberation by Putin's forces means terror bombing followed by imposition of a police state. As in Mariupol, a once prosperous city of 400,000, now a graveyard. Human Rights Watch has documented the extensive use of cluster munitions by Putin's forces against civilians in Kharkiv and other cities. Putin has turned the hearts and minds of all Ukrainians, not least native Russian speakers in the East and South, against him and against Russia. The hatred Putin has provoked, the fear he has instilled in the minds of millions of Ukrainian children, will last for generations. Until the February invasion, there was still, despite Putin's crimes in Crimea and Donbass since 2014, a brother nation's monument in central Kyiv, dating from the Soviet era, which touted the brotherhood of Ukrainians and Russians. That monument has now, since February, been torn down. In his physical destruction of Ukraine, Putin has also destroyed the once positive sentiments of most Ukrainians toward Russians. It is thus clear that, regarding Ukraine, Putin is a strategic bungler. He does not understand Ukraine and never has. He had a NATO-neutral, Russia-deferential, corrupt Ukrainian government under Yanukovych, and he, Putin, prompted its overthrow in 2014. He imagines U.S. instigation of the Orange Revolution and the ouster of Yanukovych, but this is a myth, a self-serving myth to mask his own ineptitude and his own imperial fantasies. Putin claims that Ukraine is an artificial creation and that Ukrainians and Russians are actually one people. But the Ukrainians are showing how wrong he is. A nation that does not exist does not resist so heroically. The sad fact is Putin is living in a Russian imperialist fantasy world. As his pathetic lackey, former President Dmitry Medvedev, admitted in a Telegram post recently, who says that in two years Ukraine will even exist on the world map? So there you have it. The mask, flimsy as it was, is off. That's what the war is about. It's not about NATO. It's about an imperial land grab. Putin imagines himself to be the latter-day Peter the Great, a uniter of Russian lands. But let us be clear. He wants to grab Ukraine's territory and wipe an independent Ukraine, as Medvedev admitted, off the map. And like a psychotic, spurned suitor, he is intent on punishing and destroying the object of his obsession. He is now laying waste, village by village, town by town, to the one who does not want him, to a free and sovereign Ukraine. Well, that's it for the first episode. I hope this review of some of the recent history helped add some useful context to understanding what is happening today and shed a bit of light on Putin's past ineptitude regarding Ukraine. We'll be back in a week or so with another edition. 
The Freewheeling Diplomat welcomes comments. Please email them to freewheelingdiplomat at gmail.com. This is Colin Cleary, The Freewheeling Diplomat. If you found this useful, please share it. Thank you for listening.